This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member supported nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member now. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and we are coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, July 12th, 2017. This is the 147th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is, is an amazing and passionate editor, writer, and leader in our industry, and I will introduce her fully in a moment. First, as I do on every show, I will start out with my PR tip. And then later we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to admit when you need help. Whether it's a business situation or something personal, there is no shame in getting support from others. In fact, it's healthy and smart. Asking for help is not a weakness, but rather a strength. We are human. We need each other, and we can benefit from one another. So don't be afraid to let your guard down and let others in. It will lead to a healthier and happier life. That's my tip today. Now, I'm super excited to have my guest here in the studio with me. It is Kat Kinsman, Senior Food and Drinks Editor at Extra Crispy, former editor-at-large and editor-in-chief of Tasting Table, and former managing editor of CNN's Etocracy. Her first book, High Anxiety, Life with a Bad Case of Nerves, came out in November 2016. Kat is also the founder of Chefs with Issues, where she invites people involved in the industry to share their stories and resources for dealing with the particular pressures of restaurant life so that others may feel less alone. And she does it all because she gives a damn. I love that line. So, Welcome, Kat. Thanks so much for having me, and thank you for letting me come to the best-smelling radio station on Earth. On Earth, yes. Here we are at Roberta's, getting hungry. <laughs> well, thank you for coming out. I'm, I'm in awe of everything you do and just um, knowing you, and, and we have so much to talk about. I am so excited to be here, and also a thing that people might not know about both me and Sherry is that we have had pet bunnies, and we have always bonded over this fact. It's so funny, because I was just about to say the exact same thing. <laughs> Yes, let's talk with the bunny talk now. It's it's true. It's true because I think that is how we um we we connected more when we discovered we both had 
pet on a bunnies. rooftop in Aspen, Colorado. Yes, you have to set the stage at a food and wine event. So it was all work related. It was, and then it's lovely to you know be in an industry where there are people who you find you want to spend your free time with as well. I love yes, that. Yes, I agree, one hundred percent. That's the beauty beauty of what we do and and connecting. So. Besides bunnies, and I know you're an animal lover, I, I want to. I like starting with my guests with how how they got into the industry and and how you found your path into to being a writer and an editor. Oh, completely accidentally, really. It was um, my background is in fine arts. I have a master's degree in metalsmithing, and when I was finishing, of yeah, of course, like, <laughs> like you do. I, I figured, you know, when when stuff happens, the apocalypse happens. You know, I can make weapons and shoot people's horses or something like that. But uh, I finished up that program and moved to New York and thought, well, well, um, you know, I like to do this crazy thing where I have a roof over my head and eat a couple times a day, and it's uh, you know. Not not the most lucrative field in the world, especially starting out. Um, luckily, the internet was happening at the same time, so I applied a lot of my fine arts um, knowledge to uh, web design. Um, and I had sort of equal passions of you know, visual art and writing, And but for some reason I couldn't admit to myself that I wanted to be a writer, so I would sort of do it in the margins. Mm-hmm. Um, I would send funny emails to my colleagues, or they would say, hey, you like to go out and eat and drink or go to you know see shows. Do you think you could write a review or something? So you know, I found myself working at publications that had some sort of editorial component and just sneaking in around the margins, hoping that somebody would maybe notice. Um, and I was, I was too afraid to actually call myself a writer. And then there was, um, I, I had sort of moved over a little bit more to that side. I was working in advertising and a friend who was working at AOL said, you know, we need a grilling editor for the summer. Of course, and of <laughs> yeah. And I thought, wait, okay. <laughs> First of all, I've never heard of such a thing. Second of all, like I'm going to kick myself if I don't take this opportunity. And so I gave a leave at the ad agency and never went back. Um, the food editor quit within the first week or two that I was there. The senior editor got laid off and I was just sort of left standing there. And I thought, well, okay, nobody really realizes AOL is a food section. I can do what I want with it. And I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm going to do it until somebody kicks me out. And that's kind of been how my career has gone. I just, um, do it until I, uh, until I know how to do it. That is an incredible way to get in, in the, to the food world and in the door and with, with AOL. And then, then you, from there, did you go to CNN? I did. Yeah. Um, they were developing, it was a part of a Turner called Turner new products group and they wanted to do a food site. Um, and we were developing the thing that eventually turned into CNN Etocracy. Um, at the time, we weren't exactly sure what was going to happen with it, and that part of the company was shutting down. So I took my staff out to lunch and said, I don't know if we have jobs when we come back in the building, but you know, I'm so glad you're with me. They had been people who would come over with mm-hmm. me from AOL. And uh, I was on the phone actually with Grant Ackett. I remember um, interviewing him. Um, they were coming to take my computer away from me and my keys, and uh, a, a note popped up from uh, somebody at CNN. CNN said, uh, keep everything. Don't let them take it from you. Uh, CNN is picking you up. So we actually launched uh, as oh. CNN's food blog. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it That's was incredible. It was, we almost didn't happen. but uh, While you're on the phone with Grant. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it was a little wacky. I was trying to sort of multitask. And, you know, I think we we're using instant messenger at the time. It was like instant messaging with this woman who then uh, became my boss and trying not to let Grant know that I was freaking out in the background. Very, very good at that. The multitasking. <laughs> Um, what so then? What content were you doing? Because it was the blog, it was the website, but also you made 
you made TV appearances on CNN. I did, yeah. So we we launched as the blog. They had they had done food uh, stuff. That a wonderful woman named Carolyn O'Neill had covered uh, food for them for years, and she was mostly on on air. But then you know the internet happened, mm-hmm. uh, so they were launching a whole bunch of blogs at the same time. There was a really great one um, about geek culture. Um, they ran a health blog, all of these different things. So it was uh, we launched in 2010, actually almost exactly uh, seven years ago today. And um, we were covering food news, food culture. Uh, We didn't have any kind of a test kitchen. We were just kind of winging it. And when I say we, I mean me and um, the fantastic Sarah LaTrent, who was um, by my side for years and years, like, you know, co-founder of Etocracy. I couldn't have done this without her. She had she had been our intern at AOL and and trusted me enough to come over. Um, And so we we just kind of figured out how to do it. And they needed people to talk about food on TV. So we would go on TV. Um, we would throw these exciting dinners around the country where we'd pick a city and pick a chef and we wouldn't tell the guests what was happening or who was cooking until the day of, um, we'd make TV segments about that. Um, and then we were part of CNN living as well. So we had to kind of open up what we were doing. Uh, so I started writing about sexuality and mental health and beauty. And I was the wedding editor. Weirdly, people don't sort of know that. But yeah, I was, I was actually, <laughs> I, didn't know that. I was CNN's matrimony editor uh, a lot of for, hats to wear. for a while. Yeah. And I loved it. Uh, it was such a just stupendous bunch of people who were incredibly supportive of us just trying some interesting things. I was scared to death because I hadn't gone to journalism school. I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. And then there was sort of, and I kept thinking, oh my gosh, Anderson Cooper is going to come and like fling me away from my desk or something. Um, And then I realized, wait, I know how to do something that they don't really do here, which is tell these first person stories in a very Mm -hmm. particular way. And it was really exciting to me because we didn't have a budget for freelancers. So it was all people from within CNN uh, writing for us. So it was either us, it was Sarah or me or a chef or somebody from within in CNN and they had a chance to tell their, their stories in a different way than they'd ever been able to before and that was such an exciting thing to me and I found my place yeah no I, I mean we produced wonderful content and I think that's where we we connected in the you know in the working world beyond bunnies um, but um, you decided to well, well what you tell me you decided to 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 take a different path or what led you to, to leave there and then you were at tasting table and now you're at extra crispy yeah so i when i was at cnn um i wrote an essay that eventually became my book uh, i had a couple of years before that in 2012 written an essay about my experiences with depression i've suffered from it my entire life and i thought you know what i have this a really big platform here and an opportunity to start a conversation. I felt really supported by my bosses and I wrote this piece and it changed my life. Um, I felt a tremendous amount of solidarity from my colleagues, from my friends, from strangers. Um, they let us like lead discussions about it. It was really, really empowering. And I, I sort of started taking that path. Um, a couple of years after that, I wrote a piece about anxiety and I, uh, the same sort of thing. I mean, we, we talk more about depression, um, sort of generally in society. We don't talk a whole lot about anxiety in, um, in, in a way that I, that I wanted to at that particular time. So I thought, you know, I might as well come out with this. I got a book deal from it. And so uh, things were changing around at CNN. Uh, They were going to be doing this experiment, sort of pulling us off our individual beats and having us write sort of more socially oriented news, whatever happened to be trending that day. And it just seemed like a good exit point. Yeah, that Um, makes sense. Yeah. And Tasting Table uh, came to me at that time and said, hey, you know, Adam Sachs is leaving, Uh, you know, 
talked to us about being editor in chief. And that was really exciting and new thing to do. I'd never worked somewhere before that had a test kitchen, especially one. It is the most astonishing test kitchen there. And it's right in the office. I haven't seen it. I need to see it. It's so beautiful. And there's such incredible talent there. And then I was getting to a point where I really, and they, and they were wonderful enough to let me, um, like finish up the first draft of my book while I was starting there. And then it got to a point where I really needed to just work on the book. And so once again, they were kind enough to let me, uh, become editor at large instead. So I could still be affiliated and still write stories and things and finish up my book. And that was, that was a really exciting thing to be able to do. And I was, I was sort of thinking like, okay, what, what is next? I knew the book was coming out. I had started to work on chefs with issues. I was doing some freelancing. And then I heard about this site it's all about breakfast. And I thought that's really highly specific. And then I found out uh, a former colleague of mine, uh, from tasting table, um, Ryan Grimm, uh, was, was the site director there. And I, and he asked me to freelance and I had so much fun writing this piece. I asked, do you have any full-time jobs there? And I have been working with him ever since writing about breakfast. We, that's the only thing we cover well, breakfast and brunch. And it's, uh, it's been one of the, I've been so lucky in my career to get to do all these, these different kind of things. Yeah, no, that's, it's, uh, the path is, it's, it's how it brought you and how and why you made those decisions and what led you. It, it makes, it makes complete sense. And now writing about breakfast, I mean, it, there's, there were, there weren't, or there aren't other <laughs> breakfast sites to the caliber that you guys are doing. I mean, you have amazing content, content with the videos and different, different articles oh. and, you know, different angles on, what was I seeing? Uh, the uh, you you'll never have a bad hash again. Never make that sad hash again. <laughs> the the Ol Simoncelli yeah. wrote yeah. this fantastic. She's a great writer. Oh, she's so fantastic. She's so talented. I work with geniuses. I mean, and I will say that every single day. It's one of those jobs where you wake up in the morning, and even if you're tired, even if you're feeling crappy, you think. But I get to go and see, like you know, all of these people um, who dazzle me on a regular basis. You know, we, and it's so fun. You would think that something so narrow as breakfast would really hem you in. And I would say, when you go, when when you go narrow, you can go deep. I thought you were going to say you go deep. Yeah. Oh yeah, you can. <laughs> so we cover, you know, politics and culture, and oh my god, we just did a piece about um, how uh, breakfast in uh, the Black Panther movement. You know, it's such a, it's such a really fantastic piece. And, uh, you know, we'll talk about, I wrote a piece today about, we, we, we've actually co-opted seltzer to be part of breakfast because we consider it a brunch beverage. So I'm, I'm down for that. I will, I will second that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So you can't uh, just have Bloody Marys. Oh no, no, you have to have seltzer as well. So I wrote a piece today about how my husband and I um, make our seltzer <laughs> variety. You know, I, I go for a whole bunch of pushes on the soda stream, make it really fizzy, <laughs> and he doesn't care so much. So we can do that. Um, you know, we we could do interviews with authors and chefs and and writers and stuff all about how they do breakfast. Um, having so much fun with video as well. We did a Facebook Live today with the chef, who uh, we we have this machine, this breakfast machine. That it has a griddle, a toaster oven, and a coffee pot. And the chef Eddie McNamara uh, had to figure out how to make a breakfast dish in it. We call it the three in one challenge. And he made uh, this breakfast ramen that is fantastic. We had Justin Warner made like pate. Oh, yeah. in, I had uh, him on my show. He's, he's, oh, he's brilliant. so brilliant. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's so great because this is all uh, through Time Inc. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I don't know if people know that or not, but we we're Time Inc.'s breakfast site. Um, and, it's, and it's just, there are so many points of view. I'm the only one who's sort of traditionally comes from the food world. So it's great to have these other perspectives of, 
you know, people who come from, you know, government think tank or, you know, Hello Giggles or, you know, book imprints. And, you know, Ryan came from Vice. And just to have all of those different worldviews all together connecting on this thing, like, I laugh all the time. And I am, you know, I, I, I am well aware of how lucky I am. No, it's on that beautiful note. I'm so no, you're you're glowing. You have a be- uh, you know, bright smile on your face. I can tell. Like you love what you do, which is really important. So on that note, we're gonna take a little break here, and we're gonna come back and talk more with Kat Kinsman. So stay with us. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters who acknowledge the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Kat Kinsman, the Senior Food and Drinks Editor at Extra Crispy and the author of a new book, High Anxiety. High Anxiety. I like saying that. Um, and she's also the founder of a website, Chefs with Issues. So let's get into both of those things because this, so I have the book right here with a, uh, keep with the bunny theme. There's a bunny on, on the cover because rabbits, I mean, I'm taking rabbits are typically nervous animals. So yeah. that Part of the reason why? It's so funny. The (laughs) cover designer didn't even know there was a rabbit in the book when she designed the cover. Oh, wow, funny. And she knocked that cover. I love this cover. And she knocked it out on the first try and 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 i wrote back i'm like oh my gosh does she even know there's a bunny um so i adopted my first rescue rabbit some years back and they didn't want to adopt her to me as a first-time bunny owner um because they said she had been apparently had a difficult previous owner there was a little kid who used to like to jab at her Mm -hmm. and and made her incredibly nervous and they were saying oh no no she's for an experienced bunny owner uh it's not for remember the phrase it's not for somebody who needs emotional validation from their pet and they said, and you know, she's so nervous. Who would want her anyway? And I was thinking, well, hi, <laughs> I'm your, you know, I'm, I'm your new owner. And that bunny was such a source of, of calm to me, and a really, you know, sort of you and me, you and me, bunny against the world kind yeah. of thing. And I'd come home to her every day and pet her, and she, she came to trust me, and uh, she was just, you know, she taught me you know, how to, to center myself and you know breathe a little more easily, and we were good for each other. I love it. I, I mean, I, I, I opened up the book this weekend and I read the whole thing. It was, it's a fantastic read. Thank you. You're, I hear it's a quick read. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I, I had a mission to read it, but I, I, I was in it. Like once, I don't know, once you open, 
you're 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 a fantastic, brilliant writer. I mean, I, I mean, it's every page is just filled with so much wit and so much honesty and just it's it's everyone should go pick up this book i think it's the way you put it together even i was thinking the chapters so you have all these irrational fears one to ten and i was just thinking today i'm like i don't know how irrational they are i mean i mean i think if you don't have them people would think oh that sounds crazy that sounds crazy that you can't go get your hair cut or go pick up the shoes that are at the cobbler or whatever that's weird man yeah, well, but I think I think maybe it's the intensity of it. But some of them, like like dancing or or talking on the phone, either. And like a lot, of, I don't know, talking on the phone. If that's people have a lot of fear of that, but like I don't love talking on the phone. Like it's I don't know, but I, I feel you explained. I don't know. You got just got into it and how I, I, it's it's it was inspiring and it was also just knowing you and and then the voice while I'm reading it. That's, I think that's also cool when you're reading a book and you know, the author, I love that because I'm, I, it was you telling the story in my, yes, I read. So I love, I love that when I, if it's somebody I know and you can just picture their phrasing of Mm -hmm. something, it's always really, really fun. But like those, these fears in particular, so the book is broken into like big things like love and money and stuff. And then there are these interstitial chapters that are about very specific fears that I have, like about, you know, driving or sometimes being a passenger or, um, Oh gosh, uh, you know, having kids, which I think is probably a big thing for a lot of people, but for me, it's you know, I don't have kids, so it's a smaller corner of the thing. Um, but it's, it's it's I sort of thought, what are these weird things about me that um, people, somebody who didn't have this, might be surprised to know, and somebody else would say, oh my god, me too, I'm afraid to talk about that in public. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, the more uh, these are shameful to write. I was embarrassed writing a lot of these because, you know, you think like, oh my god, what are people going to think of me that I can't pick up the phone that I'd rather get on a plane and go and see somebody in person than pick up the phone and talk to them. Like if you're not somebody with phone phobia, you're going to think that's absolutely demented. But if you are somebody, you're going to be like, Oh my God, I'm not so weird after all. Yeah. No, I didn't get, I didn't, I didn't, I I just thought it it made me, it, it was comforting to read. And also no. And also I was impressed with how you've, how you've gotten through life in a sense or, accomplished so much being especially in this industry that has so much social aspects living New York City where people and crowds are everywhere and having fears and anxiety and you know that to me I was like how did she do it you know how did you get through I mean I stopped um I gave myself permission to be kind to myself is the thing I stopped being ashamed of it I and I realized this is this is just the hand I'm dealt this Mm -hmm. is you know just this is what I'm working with um I don't need to compile that and make it worse on myself by being you know ashamed for what I'm going through so I'm going to talk about it and you know I'm going to be open about it I'm going to be a safe person for other people who are going through this to talk to as well I mean and I would get mad at myself for not being better for not being healed, for not being calmer, for not being, you know, not depressed and stuff. And then I thought like, this is just, you know, I refer to this, uh, sometimes as an autoimmune disease of the soul. I'm doing this to my, my brain is attacking my body and, and vice versa. And I learned how to change the pattern some. Um, and I've also learned when I've had enough, you know, of being around people, of being at a party, um, to say like, you know, guys, thank you so much. This has been great. I'm going home now and uh, giving myself permission to not be okay. It's, it's been absolutely huge for me. Yeah. And you talk about how you met Douglas in the book, which I didn't know the story. 
So oh. I loved I loved that chapter. Oh yeah. <laughs> so what Sherry is saying here is I used to be a professional dominatrix and I and I was actually I learned I sort of realized after the fact that I was doing that to deal with a really, really terrible breakup where this guy had completely messed with my sense of security. He lied about some very fundamental things, including his name. And I a needed big one. Oh, it's, it's it's a pretty big one. And I, I had to go and get control of my life again. And uh during this time I just, I started online dating again. Uh, and I met this lovely man named Douglas and we were sort of, and I told him what I did and he, he, he's not into it himself or whatever, but he's like, I get the theater of it. I understand that. And I double dog dared him on our first date to come out and meet me at a fetish party. Double dog dared something of our generation. It really is. I think so many of us saw like a Christmas story and stuff, but I double dog dared um, to, to show up at this, this fetish party. And he did. And I had this like guy on a leash in a collar (laughs) and I like dropped the leash. And I was like, who is this man? Like I, when I, when I met Douglas and he showed up and he was just, he was so fantastic and open. And I thought, you know what, if he can't accept the fact that I deal with anxiety and depression and all this stuff, I can't get close to him. I can't start falling in love with him. Um, because if, if I feel that he's not going to be able to accept that about me, because then I'll just, it's just going to end. So I was brutally honest with him about, you know, the stuff I struggle with that I was on medication at the time that, you know, that, that it, I sometimes would cry for no reason that there were all these things wrong. And I, I said, you know, I almost kept saying like, you know, do you love me now? Not exactly like that, but sort of uh, giving him chances to back out. And he never did. I got so lucky yeah. there too. And you've been together now, married. We've been together 12 and a half wow. years, married, uh, like 10 and a half years. Yeah. No, yeah. It's so great. <laughs> no, it's great. You're a great couple. I w- now I want, I want to get into chef's issues where, but I think we're going to hold off and it. We'll talk about it in the industry news part of the mm-hmm. show, because I have two questions for sure. you that I have to get to. Cause, um, I did, I did one broadcast taped episode and I had I had two people in a row ask you questions. So one of them's a little deep and one of them's a little Let's get light. deep. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll go deep first. Question from episode 145 with Marcy Blum. She is a top event planner and owner of Marcy Blum Associates. So she wants to know, how do you think this horrendous political atmosphere is affecting the food world in general? Oh, that's a good question. I also met her in Aspen. Now that uh, I think yeah, about it. Yeah, yeah, she's an Aspen goer. Um, it's a difficult thing. I've I've heard from a lot of friends, especially in higher end restaurants that in New York that uh, business is off because a lot of uh, tourists from around the world aren't coming into uh, restaurants. They're not they're not traveling. They're not coming, coming to, to New the York. States. They're not coming to New York specifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. you know, I know a lot of the restaurants at the higher end are really having a, a difficult time uh, with that, just keeping afloat. So, I think that's been pretty difficult. Um, Restaurant industry in, in, in general, I mean, it's it's such a charged climate right now. Um, I think there's a lot more worry. I think people are really afraid of what's going to happen with healthcare. that I know some people who have been able to open up their food businesses um, because they had Obamacare and they were mm-hmm. able to may- maybe take a chance, not take that corporate job and instead, you know, do this. And, and, and I know people have had problems with the premiums and stuff too. So, you know, it cuts all different ways. But I think people in the... Um, 
you know, in the food industry don't necessarily have any money for treatment for anything. And I think there's a huge amount of worry about where, what's going to happen with their, their health care, whether it's physical, mental, whatever. I think there's so much worry about that. Um, I think there's also really been an upswing in kindness though. I think that's been the backlash. I think people are so afraid of what is happening politically that there's, um, you know, I've used the phrase weaponized uncertainty. We never know what's going to happen from one day to the next. So I think a lot of people are being really preemptively kind to one another, maybe a little bit more empathy out there, maybe a few more people sitting together and and talking over food. So, you know, I I think, yeah, yeah, I mean, we're in it right now. There's, there's kind of no going back on it right now. All we can do is just be a little more preemptively kind to one another. And I really, really think that that is happening in the hospitality industry. Such a great answer. Yeah. No, everything. Very well said. The other question I have is from episode 146, Dr. Tim Ryan, the president of the Culinary Institute of America, and he would like to know, what's your favorite restaurant? Oh, there's a bunch of different answers to that, depending <laughs> on what I'm in the mood for. Um, I love Hearth so much. And Marco Canora knows that I will tell him on the regular <laughs> that I, I absolutely adore it. It's just food for my soul. It comforts me so much. And it's been so exciting to see Marco Canora take the leap that he has and change over he, his whole menu to reflect his views on food. He's somebody who looked at how his life was going, you know, physically and emotionally and really like put his money where his mouth is and changed his whole model of how he cooks. And you saw he went, um, you know, best chef New York this year. It really, really paid off. Um, uh, uh, Missy Robbins is going to kill me because I haven't actually been to Lilia, but she is uh, my other favorite chef in New York. I love her food so, 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 so much. I am not going out to restaurants a huge amount right now. I'm dealing with a a gut issue, so I'm on a severely (laughs) restricted diet, but she knows that the second that I can eat her food again, I'm absolutely going to. And I also, of course, have to give a shout out to Batard because John Winterman is one of my favorite humans in the world and I feel so at home in that restaurant it's it's funny it's it's playful and Marcus Glocker is like just one of the most like precise and accurate cooks in all of New York great great list yes I need to get back to Batard I visited her a couple months ago for the redo and it was it was excellent and I've been to Lillian you need to go because it's it's yeah well as soon as you're feeling well enough it's delicious oh well Missy's awesome well when I was at CNN that's where Avoche was oh right (laughs) so I saw Missy you know at least once a week or so even if I was just going in and having a a drink at the bar I and then a tasting table she came in and did a Mm -hmm. guest chef dinner that was sort of a preview of what she was going to be doing at Lilia and I I think I was crying I was like I was like I've always loved your food this is like your food went to grad school yeah, and she's, oh, she's phenomenal. She is. She is. They're all great. Great list. I love that. Great restaurants. And on that note, we're going to take one more break and then we're going to come back and uh, we're going to play my speed round game and talk that industry news I talked about. So stay with us. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network.
Liu, host of Feast Meets West on Heritage Radio Network. Feast Meets West traces the stories of your favorite Asian foods, from their origins to what they mean in today's food culture. Tune in on Wednesdays, 8 p.m. to hear my co-host Iris and I interview chefs, restaurateurs, and other food experts about Asian cuisine. Support my show and all of Heritage Radio Network's programming. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to become a member today. back. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Kat Kinsman. It's time for my speed round game. So what this is, is I'm going to name a few things and get get you pick your choice and uh, between it's an either or situation is what I like to say. So are you ready? I am ready. Okay, here we go. Eat in or eat out? In. Wine, beer, cocktail or mocktail? Uh, Currently mocktail. (laughs) All righty. Tasting menu or a la carte? Tasting menu. Small plates or large plates? Small. Communal table or chef's counter? Chef's counter. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? (gasps) All-inclusive charge. Okay. How about writing or editing? Editing. I wasn't sure where you'd go with that one. Neither was I. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking which hurts less. (laughs) Well, this one I know where you're going to go. I have um, wearing your hair up or wearing it down. <laughs> I have a bun that I screw under the top of my head every day. <laughs> you, you're a bunstagram. You're like the, the classic bun. I love it. You, you, it's your look. I'm, I met another woman today with the bun and bangs, and we were sort of like, hey. <laughs> bun and bangs. That could be a name of bars. Bun and, and bangs. bangs. Or I don't know. Okay. Two more. Cheese plate or dessert? Cheese plate. Manhattan or Brooklyn? Brooklyn. Brooklyn in the house. I like your questions. These are great. Ah, thanks. I I had one that I decided not to do that was bunnies or puppies because I figured that might be tough. Oh, that's so (laughs) tough. I have a new puppy. His name's Ogdred. I've seen pictures. Oh, my gosh. People on Instagram go to hashtag Ogdred the dog. I love this little guy. Somebody threw him out of a moving car. This is what the rescue people told me. Wow, uh, I mean, adorable. Yeah, he's so cute. I got him from Muddy Paws Rescue, and oh my gosh, he's the cutest thing in the world. He's uh, like three and a half months old. I love him so much. I'm glad he made it on the show. Oh. I'm talking about very important things here. <laughs> no, oh, no is, I am. I'm serious. I have to tell you, this is funny. Uh, my friend Jennifer Cole is um, traveling through Europe right now, and she texted me a couple days ago and said she met a British flight attendant in Paris who they just started talking. She's like, oh, there's this dog I'm obsessed with on Instagram named Ogdred. I'm oh like, my, oh, my God. That is, that's random. <laughs> it made me so happy. <laughs> and cool. Very cool. Okay, so industry news. There was a big article in the New York Times Last week, entitled Chef Sean Brock Puts Down the Bourbon and Begins a New Quest. And this is by Kim Severson. And you are in the article. So I know you're, you know about it. And so, I mean, people who listen to my show, I'm sure, are familiar with Sean Brock. He's a very well-loved, credible chef um, who has uh, some restaurants in Charleston and, Nar- and uh, Nashville, McCready's and Husk. And um, so in January, he his friends had a little intervention with him and he's, um, he's uh, changing his life from putting down the bourbon and, and uh, he 
being healthy and also trying to support other chefs and and be a uh, I guess a I wouldn't say a role model but someone who's uh, there or maybe it is a role model I don't know for for others in the industry who who might be in the same situation because as we've talked about drinking and and the industry and it's um I don't know it, it's, it's it's it can be tough for chef life it is and he I'm so thrilled for him and I, I've seen him a few times recently and he looks so healthy and good and happy and it's it's just such a joy to see him and you know he's somebody I've known for a long time and he's always had a you know as a rep as a really hard partying chef I mean he's he's brilliant and hardworking and thoughtful and there's a reason that so many people like know about him and what he does he's you know really deeply passionate about preserving the foodways of the South and moving the conversation forward in it. Um, I know he'd been dealing with some health problems, but also he was really known for his love of bourbon. And it's, you know, it's, it's hard to step away from something that, you know, is, is something that people used to identify you. Um, and, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you knew that you'd always find Sean with like, you know, a beer in hand, a, you know, bourbon, whatever it was. And, you know, and the thing is, it's so much fun until it's, it's not. And I guess he had gotten to a point where it was impacting his life and, and stuff. Um, and to make that kind of commitment and change, it, it takes so much community to do it. It takes so much from you and it, and it takes so much community supporting you. There's so many people who love him and wanted to keep him, him safe and, and healthy. And, uh, you know, they were able to do this for him. And then I might tear up here, but the fact that he is using this as an impetus to get other chefs to take care of himself, uh, to take care of themselves and talk about this really openly about self-care and emotional issues and substance abuse. Like that is such an incredibly generous thing of him. Like he's always been so forward thinking about preserving the food. Now he's preserving the people. And that is so huge to me. And, you know, and I know that, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a tenuous state, like being in, in recovery and, and all that too. And I, I think, uh, you know, I think it, that, that he is using this to empower himself and drive himself forward too. And, um, you know, be able to show off his journey to this generation of chefs who love and adore and respect him. I think him doing this, I mean, of all the chefs who could have done it, him doing it really especially means, uh, something. And I can't wait to see what's going to happen moving forward with it. Yeah. Well, but, uh, and, and, I mean, I all of your what you've done and you with finding chefs with issues, I, the same. I give it all the same to you for doing what you do because you're helping so many people, and your website just as a place that people can go and um, get information and 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 share and connect and um, tell me more. Tell me more about. That. Well, this is, I, I want to be a catalyst for conversation. So this came out of, um, in 2015, um, a few people I knew died um, in, in the food industry and, and some by their own hand or some from long patterns of, uh, you know, uh, substance abuse and things. And I woke up on uh, New Year's Day, January 1st, 2016, and thought, you know what, I'm going to do something here. And I put up a survey. I put up a website and I put up a survey asking people to tell me about their experiences in um, of, uh, mental health. It's not, uh, you know, not just addiction and, and substance abuse, but 
you know, with being, uh, you know, anxiety, bipolar, um, schizophrenia, you know, whatever it happened to be, because I just wanted to get a sense of what people were dealing with. Because I started having, after I started writing about my mental health issues, I started talking to a lot of chefs about theirs. Um, and I thought, you know, I want to get a sense of really how widespread this is. And, uh, within a pretty short period of time, uh, it, it had gotten some coverage, uh, you know, and I just want, I, I just wanted to put some stories out there and, and get this, this, uh, survey out there as of a week or two ago, it has 2050 responses to the survey. So we have really, really concrete evidence that has been, um, is sort of reviewed by a therapist mm-hmm. and stuff. So we really have some concrete uh, notions of what the issues are in the industry, you know, how, how far they are, why people aren't getting treatment for them, et cetera. Um, the other part of it is I, I wanted it to be a place where people could share their stories. So people write to me either anonymously or with their own name. And I publish some of, um, you know, what their stories, what they, they've had to say on the site as well. And then for the first time recently, I've specifically asked a person, Souther Teague, if he would write something. He had shared a, a thing on Facebook about a struggle that he was facing with, with depression after having broken his arm. And uh, it was it was so brave and open and generous of, of him to do that. Uh, before, I'd just sort of been collecting stories from people and linking to articles and things. Um, I sent him a note and I said, first of all, like, if you need any resources, you know, happy to have them. But also, you've just gone public with this. How would you feel about making a little bit more public and helping people? And a couple hours later, he sent me the most perfect, perfect essay. It was so generous and from the heart and so brave and so bold. And I, it will change people's lives reading that. And I want to make this more of a platform for other people to share their stories so people feel like they're not alone, like they don't have to be ashamed. So they can really you know, go out there and say, I'm a chef who struggles with this. I'm a bartender who struggles with this. And other people, that's the scariest thing is feeling like you're alone. You feel like a freak. You feel ashamed. Once you don't have to feel that anymore, the conversation can really start. And the other part of this is uh, some stuff has um, been really coming into action too. Mm-hmm. Um, Dominique Love runs the Atlanta Food and Wine Festival and some other uh, festivals as well. She is a force in the universe. And this year for the Atlanta Food and Wine Festival, she came, she and Jeff Gordonier had been, uh, Jeff Gordonier from, from, I always forget if it's Esquire or GQ, but phenomenal writer. Yeah. Uh, well, GQ. Yeah. Uh, yeah. F- formerly of the New York Times, <laughs> they had been talking about like, okay, what are some, uh, you know, things that we can do for chefs? You know, maybe it's a program we run for them. And then um, she had seen the talk I'd given at the Mad Symposium talking about mental health and said, can you guys run some panels um, about physical and mental health? This is only going to be for the industry. This is only going to be for chefs, their partners, and for, um, you know, key staff. So she set that up at the Atlanta Food and Wine Festival. And uh, so it was, uh, I, I ran one about um, about mental health, and Jeff did the physical health one, too. I had uh, Brandon Boltzley, M- Missy Robbins, sorry, not Missy Robbins, uh, Jessica Largi, uh, Missy was on the physical health one, um, and Daniel Patterson. And it was great and raw to be in a room full of a people for with whom it was no no public no press and people could just be really raw and open and talk about their issues with this. The other part of this uh, was that I had put the bug in her ear, her ear and I said, you know what? I go to a lot of festivals and I know like people, you know, sobriety can be a challenge. Like for you know whatever reason it happens to be, you know, even if you're just trying to get a glass of freaking water, it can be hard to get that. It, you know, there's just there's excess all around. And I talked with a bunch of different people who'd been having a hard time during those. And I said, what if there was a some kind of a safe space for that where there were you know resources. 
available if there was just water if there's something away from the fray and she said oh okay and she went to um, Scott Crawford and Steve Palmer and Mickey Basque who have uh, a fantastic group called Ben's Friends and together they put together this chill space at Atlanta Food and Wine and it was the most amazing thing while everybody's downstairs partying you could go upstairs and people were just hanging out there were um, non-alcoholic drinks available and people were able to just go up there still be at the festival and feel great and Sean mentioned that in his New York Times article he said it's the safest he'd ever felt because he had community there Yeah. The, the, the thing that's happened since then is people have found out about it and they want to replicate they the effort more. at other festivals so you know Dominique is completely on board um, and got her company on board that um, this is going to be something that you see at other festivals hopefully this is going to become the norm where yeah. people can go and feel safe and have a place to be. I mean, even just now, like with uh, this gut condition I'm dealing with, I can't drink and just trying to find water at one of these things. Well, you, you know, you know, we're as, as, as a friend of mine and I'm someone who I don't drink. I haven't drank. I'm coming up on 15 years. I'm not drinking. And so, um, thank you. But I don't, I, I mean, people know, but I don't, I'm not, I go to all these festivals and I look for the water and I kind of just, ignore the alcohol it can be hard yeah. still i mean after all these years it could be hard, hard for anyone so the fact of what you're doing and um talking about it and i i think i'd like to try to see maybe i can write an article or something for your site or do something I more um i would love that you so know much. I mean, so we, the more i mean this is one of those things where it's seriously community like i can have all the you know i I can have ideas about things. I can connect people, but then somebody like Dominique comes along and yeah. makes it, makes something actually happen in the world. And you, I think you make, you make things happen. You do. I mean, you're, you, and you're humble. You're giving credit to everyone else. And I'm giving, I'm going to give credit well, to you because I'm just impressed of everything you do. Well, thank you're you. very inspiring. Thank you so much. I mean, quite frankly, I can't lose any more friends. That's yeah. the thing is like I had, uh, right after I launched the site, uh, the, the February after I launched the site, uh, there were th- these weren't even I, actually I didn't know one of them. Um, there were three people who took their own lives in uh, the food industry in the shortest month of the year, right. and that can't happen anymore. That just can't happen. Yeah. So this is selfish for me too. I feel less alone about my own mental health issues when when I do this. Right, and yeah, helping. Yeah, this also ensures a future for restaurants. And these are my people. This is my family. It's my chosen family. Wow. I'm I'm all for for it, all pro for it, and for for what you're doing and with Sean and and everything. And I wish everyone the best because because also I mean we need to take a break, but I think it's also with Sean. It's a little hard to be in the public eye in that way. It was a big article, you know. So so you know I'm glad he has all the support he does. Yeah, he's got you know. so many people who love him. He's got the best girlfriend yes. and the best dog as well. And <laughs> he I just, just needs a bunny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He'd probably cook that bunny. Actually. Oh no! Okay, forget I mentioned that. And now we're gonna take a little break and uh, come back and do my solo dining experience. This is only industry on Heritage Radio Network. Like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? 
Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. It's time for my solo dining experience. So this week, it is at Dinner by Heston Blumenthal. Here's the rundown. The location, 66 Knightsbridge in Mandarin or in the Mandarin Oriental, London. The concept, elegant contemporary dining room with a menu inspired by British culinary history. The year that each dish was originated is indicated on the menu by every item. The chef, Heston Blumenthal, who's also of the three star, three Michelin star, the fat duck. Okay, so why did I go? Well, I was eating my way through London over 4th of July weekend, and this was a must visit. My experience. I arrived for my lunch reservation. I was escorted to a nice two-top with a view of lovely Hyde Park. Service was friendly and yet formal, and um, the staff did some nice gestures. They brought me a newspaper to read as a solo diner, which I always think is very thoughtful of them. What did I get? Okay, so for a starter, I had the meat fruit, which was in, started in 1500. It's a mandarin chicken parfait and served with mandarin chicken parfait served with grilled bread. For my main, I had powdered duck breast, which was from 19, 1850, grilled red cabbage, smoked pickled beetroot, and spiced umbles, which I then had to look up, and you guys can all go look up umbles. <laughs> and I also had a tipsy cake from 1810 with spit, roast, pineapple, and I had a coffee. So my take, it was fantastic. Okay, so this meat fruit, you have to imagine, is presented to you. It's like a gorgeous mandarin fruit, but then you slice into it, and there's a, a creamy luscious foie gras in it that you spread on the toast and just you look at this this it's art i mean it's just brilliant if you if you go there you have to order this i also had the duck um which i thought was delicious i really enjoyed it and so the tipsy cake i guess i should have known going in and getting a tipsy cake it was going to be too potent for me um what happened the waiter came by when i first took my order and told me it was one of their signature desserts and you had to order it in advance. So I just did without thinking too much about it. But then I took a bite and it was like soaked. It was a fluffy brioche soaked in brandy cream. So I ended up sending it back because it, it was just going to be, it was too alcoholic for me. But um, they were very nice about it and it was delicious, the bite. Um, the ambiance. It's an elegant room with high ceilings, ample space between tables with an open kitchen. I'd say it's perfect for special occasions or actually any occasion. Interesting tidbit. Heston named the restaurant to note the main meal of the day, taken either around midday, as typical in British history, or in the evening. And the restaurant has received numerous accolades, including two Michelin stars, and is currently number 36 on the world's 50 best list. Best restaurants list. Personal fun fact, on this trip I also solo dined at number 26 on that list. It was the Clove Club, which also was a wonderful experience. So the cost of my meal was $101 that's converted into U.S. and including tax and gratuity. And I would go back uh, if London calls. The website is dinnerbyheston.co.uk. 
Have you been? I have. Oh, you have. I have. I regret not getting the meat fruit. The cucumber was the star. The cucumber. There was. Got to go back now. There was. Yeah, there was. I, I don't remember exactly the presentation, but it was a really fantastic. Oh, sorry, no celery. Sorry, it was celery. Oh, celery. Celery. Yeah. I think everything he does is is wonderful. It's pretty brilliant because duck isn't one of like my favorite things to eat. Like I don't know the waiter. said this you should you know this is a great dish and it was fantastic like it was really fantastic i loved the service and there there was this wonderful uh french woman who was one of our servers and we still actually she put some kale down on the table and she said here is some kale and my husband and i are forever saying to each other here is some kale Okay. <laughs> it, was just, it was just really, yeah. she just sort of yeah. said it with such a smile on yeah. her face. I, no, sorry. It was, this is some kale. Like, this is um, some kale. Yeah. I didn't get that either, but next time. It, but it was, yeah. it was just so charming. So we took a little, you know, a little bit of the visit home with us. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, it's good. Good memories. No, I, I enjoyed it a lot. It's a, it's a great restaurant. And it is time for the final question. So my next guest is Joel Montanil. He is the CEO and co-founder of Seven Rooms, which is a front-of-the-house and client relationship management platform for the hospitality, dining, and nightlife industry. I don't know if you're familiar at all with Seven Rooms and what they do. I'm going to learn a lot about it. But um, if you could ask a question for Joel. What is the thing that he looks for in a potential employee that technology could never replace? That's a great question. I figure hospitality, there's something going there. There's a lot of stuff you can do with, with apps and stuff, but there's that human factor. What is it? What is that human factor that he yeah. looks for? Yeah. And you still, all these apps and you still need it. Mm-hmm. still need people. Great. I will ask. And that is the show. Right. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. I'm I'm impressed with everything you've done. I'm so glad I've gotten to know you over the years and I can t- I look forward to more creating more memories and wish you the best with everything. Thank you so much. Go hug that bunny for me. I will. <laughs> Jack Rabbit. Yeah. I've had him seven years, believe it or not. <laughs> so thank you. My guest today has been Kat Kinsman. She's the senior food and drinks editor at Extra Crispy. She's the author of a new book, High Anxiety, Life with a Bad Case of Nerves. And that's high like you're saying hello, high anxiety, and you shall go get it. And her website, Chefs with Issues. So you can find all of all of this at extracrispy.com harpercollins.com and chefswithissues.com you can also follow Kat on Twitter at kittenwithwhip and Instagram Kat Kinsman you can follow me at Sherry Bayer at Bayer PR at All Industry my Facebook page is All in the Industry my websites are bayerpublicrelations.com and sherrybayer.com as a reminder all of our shows are archived at heritageradionetwork.org and we are also on iTunes and Stitcher thank you to Kat Thank you to my engineer today, David. And thanks to Kat's publicist, Julie Pulaski, for helping set this up. I'm Sherry Bayer. Thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter 
enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. On the top of the hill you see hey!